Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. You're listening to The Cost of These Dreams from Wright Thompson. A podcast about sports stories from iHeartMedia, Graphic Audio, and Goat Rodeo. Our final episode is Holy Ground. Megan, do you play golf? I I do not play golf. I don't either. Uh, my mom tried really hard to make, uh, as my siblings and I call it, the rich white kid sports stick. Uh, and golf, I just could not get into lacrosse stuck but uh no i i never grew up playing golf and 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 certainly didn't get the kids who did no but me either i i think i got put in the tennis bucket and was still insufferably bad at that but i uh in in regards to golf though i have been um to the place where the masters tournament is played every year in georgia right yeah augusta uh, Georgia. It's supposedly it's the like golf mecca, right? In the United States, at least. Have you watched the Masters on television? I haven't. Okay, well, you haven't had been made to do that, but a lot of us, a lot of us have had to watch the Masters on television. So much of Wright's work is about fathers and sons, and the things that we hand down to one another, and the things that we don't. And this one is distinctly personal for Wright. Yeah. Well, so Wright, as a sports writer ends up getting credentials to the tournament every year. Like whether or not Wright gave a shit about golf, this is his job to cover this tournament, right? But he does. It turns out that he like he really does care about golf and he watched it with his dad. His dad made him watch it every year and he never ever got to take his dad there, which was something, you know, they talked about and uh it was definitely in the plans. And I think, you know, there's something about this piece that talks about you know, I've lost people in my life. I'm sure everyone has lost uh, someone in their life. Uh, the physical representations that take us back to certain things. And uh, for Wright, it is this golf tournament in Georgia that happens once a year. This is Holy Ground. 
I, well, I mean, one of the best parts about covering the Masters is that you can go all, in the grill room, you can go in the dining room, you can go out on the veranda. You get there early and you just eat breakfast and it's, you know, there's the fog and the dew and it's, you know, even though it gets really hot late in the day, sometimes it's chilly in the morning. And uh, so I had to go up there and eat breakfast and it's like a really old school menu, you know, like chip beef on toast, like shit World War II veterans want. And uh, it's like, you know, you're up there and they're only six or seven tables. So if you're sitting alone at a four top, they'll put somebody there. So I'm sitting there, and this guy sits down, and we just start talking. I used to have his business card. I heard from him after the story ran. He's like, was that me? I was like, yeah. So, yeah, sitting up there eating breakfast. And, like, chip. my dad loved chip. He was in the Army. He loved chip beef on toast, which I always thought was disgusting. Ugh. Was it shit on a shingle? Most everything makes me think about my daddy. And this morning, of all the stupid reasons to fight back tears in public, it's chip beef on toast. I'm sitting at the corner table on the clubhouse veranda at Augusta National, waiting for Arnold Palmer to hit the ceremonial first tee shot of the Masters. My father loved watching Arnie. To do it from the veranda with a plate of chip beef? Hotty toddy, brother. Soon, another lucky diner asks if he can join me. His food arrives first. As we talk a bit, bundled against the chill, he looks at the empty space in front of me. What did you order, he asks. Chip beef on toast, I say. He laughs. Breakfast of champions. It was my dad's favorite meal, I explain. Did you ever bring him here, he asked. There was a silence. No, I said, turning away. From the Augusta National Golf Club in Augusta, Georgia, CBS Sports proudly presents the Masters. Daddy watched the Masters every year. He dreamed of attending just one. And so he's always on my mind when I come here for my job. Indeed, for all of us lucky enough to actually walk through these gates, we cannot leave without having thoughts of our dads, for Augusta National is a place for fathers and sons. Davis Love III navigates the same fairways as Davis Love Jr. New fathers carefully hold their toddler's hands. Can you see, you'll hear them say? Strong arms tenderly steer stooped backs. Look out, Dad, you'll hear them say. That is Augusta. When Jack Nicholas finished his final round ever at the Masters, his eyes welled on the green. He glanced over at his son who was caddying for him and he repeated his own father's last words. Don't think it ain't been charming. As Jack ended his relationship with this special place, he looked at his son and thought of his father. When Tiger Woods won for the first time, his eyes searched the gallery near the scoring shed for Earl Woods. This part to break the all-time record at the Masters. Yes. There it is, a win for the ages. Mom and dad. His father with that bypass operation six weeks ago, unable they to hugged. Down on the course. Tiger's head cradled on his father's shoulder. And when he walked off the green almost a decade later and Earl Woods was no longer there, Tiger remembered that shoulder and he mourned. That is Augusta. This too is Augusta. 
Me needing a father more than ever, finishing the chipped beef on toast, walking the grounds in search of fatherly wisdom. We were a father and son in my dad's imagination before my parents even knew I was a boy. On the day I was born, he sat down and wrote a letter to himself, cataloging his thoughts. As his first child came into the world, he called me his son, with daughter written each time in parentheses, just in case. When I arrived, before my mother even cleared her head, he had already filled out the birth certificate. There was never even a discussion of what I would be called. Walter Wright Thompson Jr., he wrote. Walter Wright Thompson Sr. had grown up in the Mississippi Sticks with three brothers. Many of the traits my friends would recognize in me come from him. He loved to be the loudest guy in the room, and he loved telling stories and hearing them too. He loved his favorite places to eat beyond any sense of normalcy and the sound of the ocean and the hum of late-night conversation. He loved working hard. His own dad was a tough man with unfulfilled boyhood dreams. Nothing was good enough. When my daddy, a star quarterback, would run for three touchdowns and throw for two more, Big Frazier would be waiting after to ask why he missed that tackle early in the third quarter. Daddy decided that when he had a son of his own, he'd do it differently. He'd give his whole heart, shower all the love and attention and approval he could muster. He would be a good daddy, a sweet daddy. I remember tailgating before Ole Miss football games, him throwing passes just far enough away that I'd have to dive. I remember Destin, Florida, when I dropped my favorite stuffed animal, Sweetie. I didn't tell him until we got back to the condo, and he spent hours looking for that rabbit, and he found it. I keep it around, but I don't ever tell anyone why. When I look at it, I can feel how much he loved me. I remember skipping school to go fishing, and I remember promising not to tell Mama. I remember him always reminding me that you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar, and if it feels wrong, it is. I remember him taking me to see Superman the night it opened, even though I was in trouble, and I remember watching the guns of Navarone a thousand times with him. And I remember, as clear as if it happened yesterday, that April day in 1986, when Jack Nicholas was charging toward his sixth green jacket. I was playing in the other room, probably with the G.I. Joe aircraft carrier, and he called again. So I went into their room. He was lying on his stomach. Jack Nicholas is going to win the Masters, son, and you've got to watch this. You will remember this for the rest of your life. So we lay there my feet only coming to his knees. I was nine. He was 40, six years younger than Jack. Maybe. Yes, sir! And he cried when that final putt went in. I can't remember now if I'd ever seen him cry before. The year slipped away, but every April, we lay down on our stomachs. Tum buckets, he called them, and ood over the azaleas and odd over Amen Corner. Each time, he'd smile and mention that one day, he'd sure like to see what such a place must look like in person. He grew older. I went to college, and as a freshman, called him to ask if he was watching this kid named Tiger Woods. He was. As I sat in the Fight Out the Theta house three states away, 
I could picture him lying on his stomach, and home didn't feel so far away. It has been 10 years. I no longer watch the Masters on television, and I pinch myself every time I get the credential, though I try to hide it. Sports writers are supposed to act jaded, right? I'm sitting right now with colleagues at the Press Center interview room. Tiger Woods is at the dais, no longer the kid he was a decade ago either. Normally, he's full of boring blather, using a lot of words but carefully saying nothing. Only now he's talking about fathers and sons, about losing one and gaining another. I lean in a bit. He talks about regret and the things he wishes he'd done. He talks about what kind of parent he'd like to be. Here I am, 31 years old, he says, and my father's getting smarter every year. It's just amazing. But hopefully, my child, down the road a little bit, will say the same thing. That, to me, is the definition of growing up. There comes a time when every son starts the slow transition to father. Mine began four years ago. My dad felt a pain and went to the doctor. The scan revealed cancer. He was 57 years old, with marriages to attend and grandkids to spoil. Instead, he was in a fight for his life. He pulled into a parking lot on the way home and read the report. It said something about the pancreas. He understood he was in trouble. But the man never backed down. Once in college, he knocked out an SEC football player for messing with his brother. He attacked this disease just as viciously. After the first chemo session, he stopped at a greasy fast food chain to get a sack of sliders, a fuck you to the poison. To walk through the hospital with him was to understand his gift for life. All the nurses and doctors and patients, especially the patients who sat there through treatments alone, called him by name. For each, he had a kind word and a smile. He raised the energy level of every room he entered. We took a fishing trip he'd always want to take. I knew there wasn't any time to waste. We spent a glorious few days on a river in Arkansas, filling our cooler with trout, talking late into the night. I'm not afraid, he told me. Before leaving the fishing camp, I made a reservation for a year later. This, he said, we had to do again. We'll be here, he said, almost whispering, a guarantee. Back home, he spent hours alone at his spot behind the house. There was a cane break out there and a brick wall, tall oak trees and a creek. He'd sit there long past sunset and he'd think about his life. You'd be in the kitchen, you can look out the window and just see him sitting in the chair. Uh, and so that's where he usually was. You know, my mom thought he was just sitting out there thinking about, like, thinking about death. I don't, you know, it was, you know, it was very much like his space and I don't, I don't know what he did out there. But I mean, I think he was uh, sitting out there just trying to make peace with whatever was coming. I mean, I remember that so clearly that my mom, who's very stoic, uh, was just like she pointed out that I was I was home visiting. and She pointed out the kitchen window and I looked and she said, it just breaks my heart. I think he's scared. Like that really stuck with me. Like that's the one sort of. I remember that much more clearly than almost anything else at that time. Sometimes it does happen like in the movies. He responded to the chemo. The doctor saw the tumor shrinking, and finally a scan revealed he was cancer-free. We couldn't believe it. 
He didn't act surprised. I was at the Masters when we got the news. Daddy and I made immediate plans for a vacation. We'd go back to Destin, where he found my stuffed animal. I bought the tickets, and the day after the tournament, I drove to Atlanta, met him at the airport, and together we flew south. I gave him my master's media credential. He collected them, kept them hanging by his bathroom mirror to remind himself that his son had gone places. He treasured the parking passes, too, and faithfully affixed them to his truck after I left Augusta. In Florida, we sat in lounge chairs by the ocean. We ate quail and grits, and Daddy talked the place into giving us the recipe. We drove in a Mustang convertible with the top rolled back, and we made plans. His reprieve made him realize that he needed to stop practicing law 16 hours a day and do those things he'd always dreamed of doing. He wanted to visit China and stand above those gorges. He wanted to see Tuscany and rent a villa. Mostly, he wanted to go with me to the Masters. It's a done deal, I told him. We celebrated his birthday. I picked up dinner, the first and only time I ever did that. We laughed and I gave him a present, a black master's windbreaker. He held it up before him, glancing at me, words failing. He slipped it on and went outside to read. I shuffled off to bed. With the cancer gone, time was no longer precious. We had all the time in the world. But something made me take one last look, seeing him sitting on the balcony, thin and pale, the waves crashing somewhere out in the blackness, a thin ribbon of smoke rising up from an ashtray. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. 
Don't worry though, he's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like, I should have known. But, you know, I was 29, and so, or younger than that, and I was just like, oh, well, of course he beat it. He's fucking bulletproof. Like, what now, like, now... I would be much more skeptical about that news. But I just took it totally at face value. Like, well, okay, great. That just that seems on brand. All right, what's next? So uh, if somebody tells me how they have pancreatic cancer, I'm like, you're dead. You're dead. You might die in six weeks. You might die in 18 months. Uh, he made it two years, which is almost unheard of. But still, I mean, it's fucking game over. It's game over. And then it went fast after that. I was in Pittsburgh. You know, they do those European tours of international soccer teams. And so it was Roma playing Chelsea at whatever that football stadium is, Heinz Field. And uh, I got back to Kansas City. And then he just, it, it's crazy. I found, he just, like, there were no signs. He just, just didn't feel, he was like, I don't feel good. And it, it, it went downhill fast. Love is a strange thing. You go from a fraternity dance to the altar of a church to a cold hospital room asking, is one of us about to die? The doctors said no. They were wrong. As I sat in Kansas City watching the movie Miracle, which I remember for some reason, my father passed away. He was only a few days away from our return fishing trip. My mom didn't want to tell me until I got back to Mississippi so she made what had to be the toughest phone call of her life. After watching her husband of 34 years take his final breath, she called me and said it doesn't look good and that I needed to bring a suit. I refused to pack funeral clothes, holding out hope. The next morning, I landed in Memphis and took the escalator down to baggage claim. I saw my brother William at the bottom. I smiled and waved. He just shook his head. And at that moment, my mother slipped out from behind a sign. I knew. Your sweet daddy died, she said. I could only get out one question. Was he scared? Mama shook her head. No. The funeral week was a blur. When we picked out his favorite sport coat, I went into his bathroom, holding those master's credentials in my hands. I took them out, slipping them into his jacket pocket. Seven months later, I was back at Augusta. It was a hard week. I wore a pair of his shoes around the course, trying to walk it for him. I wrote a column about it for my newspaper. And as I'm doing now, I tried to find some closure. Then I believed my grief ended with the catharsis of a last paragraph. 
I was naive and dumb, as I found out when I returned to Augusta in the coming years, finding my pain stronger each time. Exactly a year after he died, my family gathered at home. We had a baby tree grown from an acorn that came from the sturdy oaks at Ole Miss's legendary grove, where Daddy spent so many happy afternoons. We gathered at the spot where he'd sat, where he'd made his peace, and we dug a small hole, filling it in with the roots of the sapling and potting soil. And it was pouring rain. We planted this tree before it started raining, and, uh, you know, we were skeptical even then about our ability to make it grow, but we're like, well, we'll see. And then that night, I mean, it, sometimes it rains in Mississippi, and it's unbelievable. I mean, it's biblical. And so, you know, we had this little thing outside that measures the water. And I'm like, my God, it's three inches in, like, no time. So I'm like, I got to go out there. There's mud everywhere, and I got this umbrella. And I'm like, this is fucking ridic- this is ridiculous. I'm soaking wet because the umbrella is over the tree. You know, I guess in hindsight, I should have stood over the tree and put the umbrella over both of us. Uh, that obviously occurs to me now, but oddly, it did not occur to me then. So I'm standing out there, and uh, all this is still very, very raw. And, uh, you know, I start trying to talk to him. Like, I remember that very clearly. I mean, I just remember, like, talking to nobody in the rain. Like, are you out there? You know, and it was, like, I felt even silly as I was doing it, and yet it felt somehow uh, disrespectful to not take seriously the possibility that, like, there are things about the universe we don't understand. And so, uh, but I got standing out there in the rain holding an umbrella over a tiny oak tree that's about to die, talking to myself. It's quite the night. You're looking for a person, but you're also looking for, you know, someone to illuminate the path. Maybe I'll find these answers out here at this place he loves so much. Is that crazy? Nothing seems crazy to me anymore. The grass shines like polished green mirrors. The flowers explode with a rainbow of shrapnel, pinks, purples, yellows, and whites. Mostly, though, I see the fathers and sons, like the Livelys from Charleston, West Virginia, sitting in front of me watching the Par 3 tournament. For 15 years, he'd entered the lottery for practice round tickets. This year, he won, and he took his two sons out of school for a day. I wanted that to be us. Down by Ike's Pond, television reporter Jim Gray interviews players as they leave the course. He asks what I'm working on, and when I tell him, he nods, pointing to a white-haired man sitting in the sun by the water. It's Jerry Gray, his father, and for 16 years, he's come with his famous son to Augusta. It's the only week we spend together all year, Jim tells me, and again, I'm jealous. It really doesn't seem fair. Sometimes a boy needs his daddy. I got married about a year ago, and I knew he'd have loved to stand up at the front of that church. In a way, he was. In the pocket of my tuxedo, I carried his yellow Livestrong bracelet. And as Sonia started down the aisle, I rubbed it once just to let him know if he was watching, that he might be gone, but he wasn't forgotten. I've been looking for him. I try to find messages, things he might have left behind to lead me down the right path. I know he thought like that. For months after his death, my mom found flashlights in every room of the house, 
big ones, small ones, medium-sized ones, all with fresh batteries. Then she realized he put them there from when he was gone in case she got scared of the dark. Every now and then I'll discover something prescient. I have the notes he left me from when I visited for what turned out to be the last time. There's a quote, to influence people, appeal to their dreams and aspirations, not just their needs. He wrote in blue ink, WWT Jr., we are so glad to have you home for a few days. Love, Daddy. Or the prayer he read at his last Thanksgiving, when we all still believed. Maybe he knew differently, for he wrote to himself at the bottom, What a great prayer for all of us this Thanksgiving day, and for all the tomorrows none of us can take for granted. But those small whispers and nudges are rare. So I try to find bits of wisdom and the comfort of his presence at the places he loved. I eat at the Mayflower Cafe in Jackson, Mississippi. I stay at the Hay Adams Hotel in Washington, D.C. And now I've come here to this wonderful ageless cathedral, walking up and down the perfectly manicured fairways, hoping to find a father. I walk up number 10, crossing 15 near the grandstand, working back and forth through the ponds, making my way toward Amen Corner. He first told me about it. The most amazing place in golf, he'd say reverently. Maybe he'll be here. Maybe he knows his son is lost. I climb the bleachers, finding a spot to sit alone. As I did on that rainy night by the small tree, I try to talk to him. Daddy, I whisper, are you out there? Something amazing happens. Understand that I don't believe in stuff like that, and I'm certain it was a coincidence. But just as the words are leaving my mouth, from across the course, a roar rises from the gallery, breaking the silence. The voices collecting into throaty applause, moving through the pines until it fades away, silence returning to Amen Corner. As the sun warms my face, Jim and Jerry Gray climb the bleachers. They watch a few groups move through, and as they walk away, Jim carefully holds the rope so his father can slip beneath it. It's a touching moment, something a good son should do for his dad. Watching this, I realize something. Although I relate to Jim, I also hope that someday my boy will do the same for me. It's that way with fathers and sons. The hole in your chest after losing your daddy never gets filled. You don't get a new father, you become one yourself. And my transition from son to father is nearing completion. I walk back. As the clubhouse gets bigger on the horizon, I see a dad and his boys standing near the 10th fairway. Both are wearing golf clothes. I see myself in that father, hoping he could mold his boy as his own dad molded him. It occurs to me that all my questions have already been answered. I've been shown how to be a father. I just need to throw passes a little long so he'll have to dive. I need to make sure he doesn't lose his stuffed animal, and I need to take him fishing. I need to make him promise not to tell Mama. I need to make sure he knows that you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar, and that if it feels wrong, it is. We need to watch the guns of Navarone. And I need him to lie next to me on our tum buckets, as I explained about a golf tournament in April in Georgia, about Amen Corner and Jack Nicholas. And I need to tell little Walter Wright Thompson III that his grandfather was a great man. The clubhouse is in front of me now, and I have one final task. 
Once I bought my dad's shirts and windbreakers. On this afternoon, I have something different to buy. I hurry into the cavernous golf shop, past the frame posters and the women's clothes to the back of the store. This is unfamiliar territory. I search the wall for the things I want, and I ask the clerk to take them down. I buy a tiny green master's onesie. Then I pick out a small knit golf shirt for a toddler. I have one just like it. So someday in the next few years, when I finally become a father myself and continue this timeless cycle, my son, parentheses daughter, can have a connection to this place that's meant so much to me. At the counter, the woman takes off the tags. When she sees the cute little clothes, she coos. Her words make me hopeful. Oh, she gushes. What a good daddy. I mean, a human being dies and I write 6,000 words about how it affects me? I mean, boy, that is a 20-something-year-old, early 30s. I mean, the tragedy is not that I lost time with him. It's that he lost time with me and my brother and my mother and these two kids you'll never meet. I mean, I have such a different perspective that in a lot of ways that's a time capsule of a very specific stage of grief. I'm not sure that person exists anymore. I mean, for being honest, really, like, these are all stories about sports. And there's some journalism nerds who might know them, but basically these things are lying in bird cages. And, but this one feels like it really did something for some people. And, you know, if I had to pick one and had to unwrite all the other ones, it would, I would very obviously be keep this one. I'm not sure I could write it now. Like, I'm not sure I'm in touch with that pain enough. I mean, it's still there, I think, but like, I don't, it was very visceral. I mean, I wrote it in the press room at Augusta. Uh, just like, you know, fucking idiot. And, uh, I don't know, I'm just very grateful. That story keeps him alive in a way that I didn't foresee. The Cost of These Dreams is from iHeartMedia, Graphic Audio, and Wright Thompson. This series is produced by Goat Rodeo. Ian Enright and Megan Nadolsky are the lead producers. This episode is part of the eight-part series, The Cost of These Dreams. Find other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to dive in deeper to Wright Thompson's The Cost of These Dreams, access the full audiobook wherever you get your audiobooks. Discover other works by Wright Thompson, including his latest book, Pappyland, wherever books are sold. From the Goat Rodeo team, production assistance from Rebecca Seidel, Isabel Kirby-McGowan, Hamza Shittu, Maxwell Johnston, and Kara Schillen. Music by Ian Enright. Our deep thanks to Wright Thompson, Caitlin Riley, and John Weiss. Thanks for listening. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. 
from Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.